Good evening and welcome. You are listening to Corbett Report Radio, broadcasting live from the Tragedy and Hope Studios in Connecticut. It is midnight here on the East Coast. Thank you for tuning in to RBN. I'm your host, Richard Grove, sitting in for James during his time off on this well-deserved vacation. This is a continuation of last Friday's episode, and if you missed part one, you can find the outline, notes, and references on tragedyandhope.com. Tonight, I'm once again joined by Tony Myers in studio and on the line. We've got Brett Vinat of the School Socks podcast. Welcome, Brett. How are you doing on this fine evening? I'm doing good. It's good to be back with you guys. Well, we are excited to have you back and continue this part two, uh, where we left off last time talking about this character from Prussia in the 19th century named Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Egel, if I remember correctly. How would you summarize what we covered last Friday quickly? And then we will break into this interesting character of Egel. Well, sure. We were talking about a series of shows that I had put together for my podcast, which is called School Sucks Podcast, uh, based on a video I made uh, called The American Way, paralleling some of the frightening similarities or ominous parallels, as they've been called, between uh, the rise of the Third Reich in Germany uh, through the, really, through the latter half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century with what is going on in America today. And one component of that, one very important component of that, in addition to the education system, which is what I focus on on my show, is uh, the philosophy uh, of German idealism, of which Hegel was certainly uh, an integral piece. And um, he was considered by many to be the most important, most influential philosopher of the 19th century, uh, preceded by uh, somebody that he had a great amount of admiration for, from what I can tell, a man named Immanuel Kant. And... Um, yeah, his ideas, uh, whether it was intention or, uh, his intention or not, seemed to shape uh, a lot of the latter half of the 19th century in Central Europe and the first half of the 20th century in Central Europe, and then it moved on beyond Central Europe after that. So we're talking about an individual, a human being who lived, uh, you know, 100 and almost almost 200 years ago now because he died in 1830. So we're talking about an individual who was seeking truth through his life's path, and he he wrote a great number of books and, and printed a lot on this subject. And what you're explaining is that this character, who's been dead for almost 200 years, uh, it has had a profound influence on our reality today as we live and breathe and, and, and conduct this show tonight. So what we're going to do for the rest of the show is kind of go into the depth of this character, because... A lot of times it's a superficial gloss that's that's given when, when Hegel is introduced. Or See, that's my nomenclature. I still call him Hegel in my head. So, Hegel. When Hegel is discussed in, uh, in research communities, it's usually a superficial gloss. And our goal tonight is to flesh him out as a human being for all his uh, finer points and his faults. But more importantly, to notice this path of history that has continued to repeat insofar as the work of philosophers being taken and corrupted by the elite ruling class that is left to manage their legacy post-death. So, Brett, how would you uh, lead us in? We're going to have a break here in, in just a short couple seconds, but how would you lead us into thinking about Hegel as not just a person who's known for the, the infamous uh, nomenclature of problem-reaction-solution? 
Uh, mm-hmm. Can you summarize somebody's life in three words like that, or or have you found through your own experience and learning curve that you need to take a, a deeper consideration and give some benefit of the doubt when reading these things? Sure, and I think that's a very important uh, recognition that a lot of these people are not uh, the diabolical masterminds of long-term historical plots, uh, but their job, like Hegel, like uh, Nietzsche, uh, while they were products of their times, they were also observers, evaluators, and critics of the times in which they lived and the places in which they lived. Excellent. We will be right back. You're listening to Corb Report Radio on RBN. Report Radio, Friday night. We are talking about this character named Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Egel. That's the who. The where is Germany. It was called Prussia back in the 1800s. And the when was approximately from 1770 through 1831. This is the time of his life. The why, the quote would be, I believe the course of my own development as a philosopher, I have recapitulated and give expression to autobiography of the absolute. So that sounds a little enigmatic. Let's break into this character, Egel. Brett, how would you continue with that fine thought you started right before that break? Yeah, and I think that uh, this is something that's very important because, one, and, and you know, it's good that we're doing this show tonight because one of the flaws that I've noticed in my work and certainly in other people's work as well, but certainly in my own, is uh, judging people by the results of their philosophies and often using uh, the name of a man to sum up a historical process, which many aspects uh, of that process might have been accidental. I feel like after learning about somebody like uh, Colonel uh, Edward Mendel House, a close uh, uh, advisor of Woodrow Wilson, that some of the things I've said about Wilson, I almost feel like I owe the man an apology. But, uh, you know, this is a bad habit that we have, using names as shorthand uh, for, for the consequences of some of their ideas. And uh, I believe that Hegel was a man who was trying to uh, understand the process through which um, society evolves and develops. And uh, one of the things that I think was particularly important about him is that he believed in his time, history, for, for lack of a better uh, summation, history was over. In other words, they had the right ideas. They had the best ideas. And this Prussian state that had evolved uh, by, you know, the early half of the 19th century was the greatest uh, realization, the final phase of historical development. And he saw uh, the his society he was a part of as basically the replacement for the great societies of antiquity like Greece, Egypt, and uh, the Roman Empire. So most of his work seems uh, to be about trying to understand the whole, the whole, the, the real comprehensive picture of how things got there and how everything was interconnected. Uh, but yeah, it's a sense. movement towards the whole. He takes it from Heraclitus, an ancient Greek philosopher. He also takes... His best friend, Friedrich Holderin, um, he idealized the Greeks, and it wasn't really until the 20th century until Holderin was really realized for his brilliance and translating uh, a lot of these Greek poetries and whatnot. So it's very interesting to note his influences and uh, to see that, you know, in his lectures in Berlin towards the end of his life, um, when he gave the lectures in the history of uh, philosophy, I believe, he noticed this trend toward freedom. 
and he he saw that the German Prussian state model was that perfect model towards the end. And it's interesting to note that he lived through uh, the one thing. Well, to go back to the idea of naming, um, we we tend to use names to ascribe to authorities, and that's a, that's a problem because that those names have simple underpinnings of qualities of these philosophers that really uh, lose the context. And we, we forget that Hegel lived through enormous periods, uh, epochs. Uh, for example, he lived through the French Revolution. He lived uh, through the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and he got to see the birth of the Prussian state and starting a lot of these ideals of the post-idealist uh, movement in Germany, a lot of these philosophies coming to fruition. And it's very interesting to note his influence on really noting a pattern of history and noting that um, essentially freedom went through uh, three stages. And I believe he noted the three stages, if I, if I don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hegel states in his philosophy of history that the natural tendency of humanity is that toward freedom. So when you understand the pattern of history that nature is telling through the story of humanity, it is about human beings as individuals discovering, exploring, attaining, and maintaining their freedom. This creates a, a, a panic of scarcity among the elite ruling class because what they realize with Hegel's work, with Hegel's work, is that the ruling class, tyranny itself, is finite. That nature doesn't have any plans to carry on tyranny any longer than, than it's necessary. And it's necessary until people learn the lessons of the fallacies of authority and need to get back to an objective relationship to that which exists. So what you have is this, this fire set off in the minds of the ruling class, and that's when the Prussian state and everyone else follows in, in suit with the Prussian state, tries to clamp down for the final run on humanity to box us in, to use all these different types of uh, psychological con conditioning, uh, Skinner and Pavlovian techniques, all these different, you know, as Klausowitz, another Prussian would say, total war. Not just fighting us on a battlefield, but fighting us in the grocery store and at our, our water tap and at the gas pump and every step of your day. This is the, the, the corruption of Egel's philosophies plays into all these frustrations. But it's not Egel himself. It's not the flawed character because there's a lot of brilliance in what he realized. And I think there's a lot of hope and what he realized and proved as far as demonstrating that the natural tendency of nature is for us to learn from our mistakes, to communicate with each other, and to find and attain freedom, and to help, you know, not spread that through force, fraud, and, ag and aggression, but to spread that through the logic and reason of communication and, you know, being compassionate and empathetic with other human beings. And, Brett, what I heard in your part three of The American Way, this, this trilogy that you put out, was not so much just basing it on, like, is he being accurate or not? Because there's many different interpretations of this information, and we are all, as of yet, still learning. But what I heard was you going through the dialectical argument in your own head, having questions and trying to find answers about how, how this character played, you know, such an enigmatic character and, and, and such a, a strange role in history, played such, a, a, you know, an influential part in where our education comes from, and, and and so on and so forth. So could you continue to comment and help to flesh this Egel character out as a person? Uh, sure. It seems like as his life went on, uh, as this you know happens around the world all throughout time, talented intellectuals, their uh, abilities, their ideas are often uh, co-opted by the powers that be. And it seemed that as Hegel got 
older, he became more split between, you know, this uh, idealization of the spirit of the French Revolution and his love of philosophy, the things that you were just uh, talking about, Rich. It seemed like he was... Uh, forced to forge kind of an alliance with the the Prussian ruling class, and there was uh, rewards for him uh, to, to do so. Um, you know, uh, I know that he wound up in Berlin. Tony, what was he? The, he wound up becoming the, the head of the... Um, it was... Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he essentially was appointed by von Altenstein, I believe, was the Prussian minister at the time, and he's appointed to one of the uh, departments, essentially, to hand down, I believe, education. Oh, no, now I believe he was actually uh, appointed his professorship at the University of Berlin by von Altenstein. And so he, there, from there, he went on to uh, give lectures on, the, I believe it was the history of philosophy, I've, oh, the the history of right, I don't know, or the story of right. I think it's called the history of right. And essentially, it's a le it's a lectures he gave over that decade from 1820 to 1830, I believe, uh, towards the end of his life, where he uh, essentially expounded upon what we were just mentioning about this uh, uh, the history of philosophy, this movement of freedom, and this uh, self-realization of freedom. And that's where he really formalized those ideas, but he formalized them in the ideal in the ideal of the Prussian state. And that's what needs to be understood is essentially <clears throat> his, uh, and we'll get more into the whole method he used, the method that's you know, ascribed to him. But uh, at the end of the day, his method really isn't much of a method as it is just an observation of patterns in history. Patterns that, much like a fractal uh, painting we see, each part fits into a whole symmetrically and perfectly. And so it, in, when we look at it from that analogy, from that standpoint, we can see uh, connections to heat, the connection to a, a very metaphysical and abstract uh, uh, ideologies he was trying to uh, convey, but you know, trying to roll it out in morals and ethics and different areas that were very hard to try to bridge the gap. And what makes him so difficult to understand as a philosopher? Well, that's yeah, you know, challenging because you have you have Enlightenment versus post Enlightenment thought, and Kant attacked metaphysics and sought to create this inseparable barrier between faith and reason. And you have Schelling and Hegel, who are Lutherans, that ascribe that this inner freedom of the French ex Revolution, which externalized into inner freedom, right? So there's these, there's all these dynamics going on, and you have to realize that the Prussian state is a recipe composed of Hegel and Clausewitz and Kant and Fichte and all these different characters and mindsets and philosophies in the Prussian state. The ruling class takes what's useful to them and then proliferates it and throws anything that was useful to us regarding Hegel, for instance, and keeps it away from us. Sure, and back to the whole man in the context of a time and a place, and to expand on what Tony was saying about Hegel's idea of everything being a part of something else. You know, if A is part of B, you can't understand, you need to understand B to grasp A. For a man who was essentially a fish in the water of mysticism and collectivism, in other words, those things are so ubiquitous you can't even see them, because, like, what else is there? Um, what eventually wound up swept up in that idea of everything is part of something else, uh, that included people. Nothing could be considered uh, in isolation. So when Hegel says something that sounds so nefarious, like the state is the divine idea as it exists on Earth, it kind of uh, grew out of what was connected to what we were just talking about there, that you only have meaning within the context 
of your community. These kinds of statements were being echoed all the way into the 1930s and the 1940s, where you have uh, these people who've been long dead. And that includes Kant, that includes Hegel, that includes uh, Nietzsche, who they're not uh, they're not there to answer for. Right on. And explain their philosophy anymore. We're about to go to break. If, if this sounds complex or interesting or fascinating in any way, you can check tragedyandhope.com on the front page. We've got the entire outline we're discussing tonight as well as a three-dimensional brain model that you can click through and actually get to know some of the characters that tie into the story. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. We are deep in the discussion about Georg Egel. Brett, what you were talking about before last break was tying some of these ideas of uh, the loss of metaphysics and what kind of a destructive effect this can have on a society. This isn't Egel's uh, error, but it's uh, inherent in his environment. Uh, one could even say the zeitgeist of the day was to throw away rationality and to, you know, find different ways to perform crowd control by sacrificing individuals to the state. And this is inherent through, through Hegel's work because he's, like you said, a, a fish in the water swimming through this. So it's, it's ubiquitous in his culture. He's growing up in a very militarized culture and the, the dependence and uh, survival of his nation, uh, is, is tied to this whole idea of being able to follow authority and follow orders, otherwise uh, the Prussians can't be militarily dominant, and that was uh, that was their whole claim to fame in the 19th century. So help us understand the next level down. Well, if I may, well, I just, may go ahead, Tony. Well, if I may interject, um, we have you to remember away. I mean, <laughs> this is this is a, a freewheeling show. There's it's unscripted. There's no teleprompters here, in case you're wondering, folks. No teleprompters. What? <laughs> But if I may, if I may interject, um, we, we have to remember this stems back to Immanuel Kant and what he, uh, essentially laid down, what laid down with his critique of pure reason. And he laid down the idea of this separation between faith and reason. What can we possibly know? And that question was try, essentially was, uh, set, a bunch of philosophers set about to, uh, try to correct the paradoxes inherent in that philosophy. And that's when we get this kind of, uh, sort of post-enlightenment uh, German idealism with uh, uh, Fichte, uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte, and he wrote uh, di- a bunch of different critiques uh, against Kant. But essentially the idea was he's trying to rectify this metaphysical idea of uh, idealism or this subjective, this whole subjective whole, this uh, essentially this consciousness at the whole of all reality. And uh, each one you have uh, also Joseph Schelling and you have uh, Egel, and they all sought to rectify subjective really versus objective knowledge. And although that sounds complex, um, it was a, it, at the time uh, it was an incredibly difficult. It, it, we have to look at it in perspective because it just came out of the Enlightenment era where we had Galileo, we had uh, uh, Newton, where uh, rationality and reason were really uh, propelling the advancement of science. And then you have Immanuel Kant who comes in here and says, oh, "Wait a second! All of a sudden, we can divorce." Uh, this idea of how much can science really give us in terms of practical knowledge and in terms of what we can possibly know in the, term, in the realms of metaphysics. 
And that, that becomes a very difficult separation, and that sparks a sort of schizophrenia, if you will, in well, philosophy. He's living in a culture of idealism and absolutism and the master-slave dialectic, and, and if you don't support that, you're going to be unemployed in the society. Just like in exactly. our society, if you don't support the status quo, uh, you know, you got to get out there and get your own business going, find your own way. Brett, what do you think about the, uh, the fact that Hegel is coming up to us today in this this violent stream, that's how we're interpreting it. And yet, he had no knowledge of this at the time. So I think again, we, maybe we have to do a uh, a show where we human you know humanize Immanuel uh, Kant because you hear his name being thrown around as another cause of this irrationality. But I find that if, if we go in and inspect the individual human beings that are putting this out uh, in their own words and, and judging them basically by their intentions as they're communicating, not how we've inherited it you find that there's just other people through time that are being used and that pattern of history continues to repeat. And what do you think we can do as far as like, you know, you gave a lot of good advice to your audience of how to avoid the pitfalls of judging the book before you read it and judging the person before you get to know them and these sort of things. How would you explain, you know, to an audience, not so much for their own edification, but for their ease and communication with others, how to... Be, speak with more diffidence when we're communicating these things. Well, you know, it was interesting, Leonard Peikoff's advice, and the objectivists are obviously the harshest critics of German idealism, uh, and I think there's a lot of their criticism uh, is very well-founded, but uh, Leonard Peikoff's advice was, don't read Immanuel Kant if you don't have to, um, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. But um, it is very important to realize that, um, just as I was saying before we went to break, these men died and they're not around anymore to explain their ideas or answer for the results of their ideas. And their ideas can certainly be perverted or misused. We can look at some of the things that uh, Nietzsche said at the very end of the 19th century, like, you know, people are a bunch of sheep and they're waiting to just be led around by, to use uh, Hegel's terminology, world historical individuals like Napoleon. And you say, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty harsh, and that shows a pretty low opinion of the masses. And you can see why Hitler found somebody to be so inspirational. But um, to drill down a little bit more and understand if you read uh, a little bit of Nietzsche, you can understand that he was evaluating the time in which he lived, where he was the recipient, as far as in his time and in his place, a century. Uh, he was the recipient of a century of a culture that had been exposed to the Vokshale, the people's school, where people were just being taught to be obedient and trusting followers of their leaders and loyal to the state and the uh, collective uh, above everything else. So, yeah, it does appear, back to Hegel, that his work is, as time goes on, and as we look back at it, it becomes this ultimate argument from authority that the general will takes precedence over individual desires, because now it has this, the, the masters of society have been able to pull this moral facade um, you know, the, the moral facade that collectivism provides in front of their agenda. So a lot of these guys, uh, their ideas, when they're gone, are ultimately used towards these malevolent ends. I mean, the only person that you could even say uh, maybe didn't have the best of intentions was Johann Fichte, who was called out in his time as basically a charlatan hack 
by um, Schopenhauer. Right on. Well, when we get back, we'll talk about Schopenhauer, Fichte, and we're going to get into dialectical thinking of this personage known as Egel. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio, and we'll be right back. You just do as you're told. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to Orbit Report Radio on this Friday evening. We are talking about Georg Egel. And before I go back to Brett and we get into this thing called the Hegelian dialectic, we have a caller on the line who's uh, from Australia, so we'll have to be very polite, extra polite to him. His <laughs> name is Nick Ulbrich, and he is a, uh, a subscriber to the Tragedy and Hope community as well as the School Sucks podcast. And uh, he posed that he had a question. I said it would be an appropriate time during this break to, uh, to ask Brad. So go ahead, Nick. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, and good morning uh, on the East Coast to, to you guys over there, Tony, uh, Rich, and Brett. Uh, Brett, firstly, um, thank you very much for all the hard work that you've put into the American way. And uh, I know just how difficult it must have been for you as, a, as an editor myself. Um, and what you've done is truly remarkable. So thank you, you need very to be much. commended. You need to be commended for that because it's it's uh, really great. And I think the next thing before I get into my critique, which is a, slightly different to a criticism here. Uh, but this is a this is a benchmark for you, and what we need to do here is ask ourselves how can we improve, rather than get caught into was this right, was this wrong, but look at what did I do well and what can I improve on uh, sure. as we move forward uh, together as a community. So uh, having said all that, um, I, I'd like to sort of say that there's a bit more to this story, and and I think one thing that you've missed tonight when we're talking about Hagel. Uh, and I pronounce it Jorg Hegel, uh, Rich. Um, but one thing that I think we're missing is phenomenology. And if we, and that's the key to this. So, uh, I can give a definition if you need it, but I think this is really important to understanding Hegel, uh, as a three-dimensional character. So, my question is... Define to you, away. Brett, before yeah, we discuss define anything, define your terms, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to borrow from, uh, Melu Ponty, who was, uh, who came a little bit later, uh, and he was a phenomenologist as well. He says, phenomenology is the study of essences, and according to it, all problems amount to finding definition of essences. The essence of perception or the essence of consciousness, for example. But phenomenology is also a philosophy which puts essences back into existence and does not expect to arrive at an understanding of man and the world from any starting point other than their fascist Facticity. It tried to give a direct description of our experience as it is, without taking uh, without taking account of its psychological origin and the causal explanations which the scientist, the historian, or the sociologist may be able to provide. So that comes from um, his work in 19. Uh, well, the reprint was in 1994. That's in the introduction on page seven, uh, which is VII. So it's not the. Uh, Arabic numeral seven. It's the Roman numeral seven at the beginning there. Uh, so, with that in mind, my question to you, Brett, is in two parts. Part A: 
Do you agree with this statement that thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is what we now call problem-reaction-solution, stems from Victor reading Kant through Hegel? And part B, would you agree that this idea has done to Hegel's dialectic, which is absolute negation concrete, what survival of the fittest did to Darwin's theory of evolution? So, first of all, do I think that this is, just to rephrase that, this is more of Fichte's influence than something that Hegel actually formulated himself? Uh, yeah, that's my question, yeah. yeah yes, I, I would agree. Uh, I would agree with that. And as far as the second part is concerned, can you, can you give me the second part one more time? Sorry about that, Nick. That's okay. It's, uh, it's, I'm trying to cram a lot into this. As I said during the break, I'm more than happy to have a longer forum conversation with you about some of these ideas and maybe even introduce something I call psychological inertia. Uh, but before that, um, basically if you read Phenomenology of the Spirit and get to the dialectic as Hegel defines it, he doesn't use thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He uses absolute negation or concrete. Right. Uh, which is what he calls a dialectic. So I was just wanting your opinion on, on the difference there and whether you think it's akin to survival of the fittest and what that did to Darwin's theory of evolution. As far as survival of the fittest uh, applied to the human race, what's often called social Darwinism, as if it's a different subject entirely? Yeah, if that's where you want to take it, yeah. So do I think that this is a liability to his credibility in the same way that that would be for Darwin? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it would seem so as far as how Hegel is kind of evaluated where people have only this cursory knowledge of what he's all about and we have people summing him up as somebody who, and I, geez, you know, I did it myself uh, and I was try I tried to be careful about how I said it, but I think I said that his philosophy which probably, as uh, we've acknowledged here, comes more from the mind of Johann Fichte, uh, provides the ruling class a sort of owner's manual for human society. So obviously that is a, an enormous black mark on the body, uh, his body of work, whether it's accurately attributable to him or not. Well, Go ahead, Tony. Well, I was going to say that's very well said, Brett. And just to get back to um, uh, the, your first question, I believe it was your first question, at least in the first part where you mentioned that if you just do a quick perusal on the dialect, dialectical thinking or the Hegelian dialectic on uh, Wikipedia, it says that um, essentially Hegel attributes uh, to Kant, but Fichte is the one who kind of formulates it. So essentially, yeah, I mean, it's along those lines that Fichte is the one who really, he focused on the synthesis model, I believe. But you, you are correct that Hegel used the terms abstract uh, negation and concrete and this idea of this, uh, this method or process he's observing of this movement towards freedom of the spirit, this, this movement of parts towards a whole that was later usurped by uh, people, uh, collectivists that thought they could impose their will to move those parts and fit those parts into that whole through the educational system, which we kind of uh, talked about last week. But, yeah, I mean, if you get into a bit more of the um, the terminology, it does become interesting because the, the problem is uh, Ar Aristotle's logic, which was used for 2,000, is, uh, was used up for 2,000 years up to that point, 
Uh, he essentially turned that Khan turned it turned it on its head, and Hegel tried to rectify Khan. And in doing so, he allowed for contradictions, if you will, uh, in his logic. And that those contradictions uh, depend on the negation, depend on you having a, a question in your head and uh, uh, holding the opposite. Uh, or negating that question, and then having a synthesis, and that synthesis because you're still including things that aren't true in right. that synthesis by it's, definition, which is why the elites prefer it. And, and I think it's important to distinguish between like what David Icke calls the problem reaction solution and attributes it to Hegel or Hegel or however you say his name. That's an incorrect attribution because that's a recipe. Like you need the the ingredients are Fichte, Kant, and an Hegel that 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 kind of produce that observation. But what Hegel's saying is according to history, the dialectic is the method by which human history actually unfolds. So he's just describing this method uh, of the rise and fall of civilizations, the preservation of power, and these sort of things. And that's kind of a neutral thing, and it's all in how the other people who are trying to curtsy up to power take that idea and take it to the elites and say, hey, look, you can take away parts of this and make it irrational and use it to use force, fraud, and aggression as, as a way to rule over people, which I think... Is something you brought out, Brett, through the American way. It's like the reason you made that video was to kind of bring people's attention to what's going on in our school system and the fact that we are heavily militarized and conditioned and we're not educated. And the education is something wholly different than what we're getting in public schools. And you got so much feedback from that, so much interest, like tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, that you created this five-hour audio series, The American Way, on your podcast, uh, The School Sucks Podcast. So help us kind of wrap this up in this in this segment because there's only one more segment after this so we are probably going to have to continue this into next week or an after show or a podcast or something because we have a lot still to talk about about the dialectical part of just coming to a conclusion because the dialectic is the the, the process of logic you use in your mind to to argue with yourself to figure out and discern fact from fiction and reality from illusion and that is something i think you did really well in articulating in a very freestyle and dare I say, nearly poetic manner, in especially the third episode of that trilogy. So, how did you go about, you know, marinating in all this information in order to come to understand it? At least to that point, and like Nick said, uh, you know, a, as he pointed out, we are all, as of yet, still learning here. So, this is a continuation, and he's just simply pointing out here's some expeditious paths to get to the understanding we're seeking. So, how did you come about doing that for yourself? Well, simply put, I drive around in the car and talk to myself. <laughs> that's uh, that, that is what i do and, uh, eventually after you know i would listen I, w I would listen to other people talk and i would stop um yeah i, I would i would just take uh, audio usually looking for things um where i felt a strong sense of, of disagreement or incredulity incredulity excuse me about what i was hearing and i would just uh you know i just pause it and talk my way through it literally out loud Sure, I look like a maniac as people pass me uh, on the highway or observe me at stoplights, but I found this to be a, a very useful process and sort of, um, you know, dealing with the contradictions and what other people were presenting. And eventually, after enough time of doing this, it occurred to me that maybe I should be uh, recording this. Uh, but for this for this speci specific series of shows, um, I put out that video, which was based on an earlier episode of the show. And um, once it was done, I watched it, and I started to critique it, and I started to kind of uh, bookmark parts that needed to be expanded. And then um, I took the audio of the video with me in the car, and I would pause it and just talk through an expansion 
of that part, also acknowledging criticisms as, uh, you know, YouTube is great for feedback. And sometimes uh, it's just an angry person who's never posted a video of their own who wants to tell you about how they think you're terrible. But some of the feedback is very thoughtful. And usually that kind of feedback comes to you in uh, emails that are that are well written and a few paragraphs and cite sources and make suggestions for further reading. Um, people were very critical about my treatment of Kant in the first episode of that series, so I tried to incorporate that into later episodes of the series. But yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really important process that people are often afraid to do, is to, when something is questionable, whether it was an idea that you formulated or not, to stop, and whether you're doing it out loud or not, talk your way through it, and try to remove contradictions, try to achieve consistency, and um, most of what wound up being in those three parts were things that I had talked my way through on my own uh, before recording. So that's a little bit about the process, I guess. Well, and what I noticed, uh, that's interesting because I didn't know that. So that was a legitimate question I didn't know the answer to. Um, Gatto, at the beginning of the Ultimate History lesson, threw me off likewise, like you just did. I mean, it was I was completely surprised to hear that that was your process. I really expected to hear that you sat down at the desk and you you had a bunch of books or something. You know, I just had this picture in my head that wasn't accurate, and I'm glad that I asked. Oh, no, that's true, too. That's assume. true, too. Yeah, oh, I mean, well, there, okay, okay, there was right a period on. with desks and books, for sure. <laughs> so Gatto says at the beginning, when I asked the first question, he says, well, you know, I tend to argue with myself, and I write it out longhand, so it takes me a long time. So what he did, his training, was to write it out longhand and argue with himself on paper. Right, some people do it in their minds. You did it in a car, talking to yourself, and thought, "Hey, maybe I should broadcast this. Maybe other people could find this useful." Just like we thought when we heard Gatto say that, I was like, well, "I would love to see those those arguments <laughs> and see how he came to some of these conclusions." Because we all find some of the similar conclusions, but we came to them by different paths. And I think it's our job to kind of map out all these different paths by which these conclusions can be reached. I think it's also important to have a consistent method by which to map out some of these conclusions. You know, yeah, using logic, having uh, critical thinking, making sure that you're uh, observing objective reality and adhering to the law of uh, cause and effect and these simple truths that obviously dictate uh, the reality we live in. And it's important that we use a consistent method uh, to attain those uh, or help to uh, ascertain those truths or conclusions that we can be confident about uh, moving forward. So that's what we try to do at tragedyandhope.com. And I know Brett uh, as well at School Sucks, uh, he does uh, through the, the three-part series, he showed, and I believe in the first part, he actually had a, a primer on logic and he had a primer with... Uh, uh, well, he's going to continue that series on logic, aren't you? Or is right? that a different? Yeah, I was hoping you would. Yeah, that that is going to continue. In fact, I just put out the second installment of that today. It's called uh, Foundations, Attitudes, and Values, and it's Wes Bertrand from CompleteLiberty.com, and I uh, go over the basics uh, of what uh, foundational understanding of logic should be uh, through the lens of objectivism, largely through the work of Leonard Peikoff, um, <laughs> to uh, get the foundational knowledge that people would need to successfully spot and communicate the occurrences of fallacies to other people. So that's It's interesting that you just brought that up because I thought earlier when you mentioned Leonard Peikoff and the ominous parallels, or, or you at least referred to it, I thought, well, I have something to say about that, but I'm not going to interrupt Brett right now because it's not the appropriate time. And I remember listening to it, and I wrote it down during the time, and I thought, well, I'm not going to email Brett about this. But since I got you on the line here, Brett... 
Sure. I've read a bunch of Peacock and Ayn Rand books, and I've checked out all that stuff, and I found the inherent flaws and like the Achilles heels and stuff like that. I gotta say that Ominous Parallels is one of Peacock's most fallacious writings. I mean, I, I can dig his work in a lot of different ways. I like his logic class. I find that to be very useful because there's not much else out there of that quality. And, you know, and I, we got into the source materials where he got all these ideas from Lionel Ruby and, uh, we've, you've used alternative textbooks. But the point is that, uh, you know, Peacock's great in some areas. He's introduced us to many great things, but, there's also some serious shortcomings to his thinking and his in-the-box mentality. I mean, uh, it's just oh, inexcusable. A, a big thing with objectivism is not minding a contradiction here or there, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> as far as, like, um, you know, the real hardcore dogmatic objectivists uh, who follow Rand the person uh, and do not uh, really open themselves up to a critical evaluation of some of the flaws in that philosophy, especially uh, her failure to apply objectivist ideas to politics, to the state itself. Um, and this is something that Wes and I actually talk about uh, for probably five or ten minutes in this show, because it's something that has to be acknowledged. It's such a glaring contradiction to the rest of the, the philosophy. Um, but... Yeah, I think that uh, Peacock, the book was written, I believe, in the early 1980s, so I think our perspective today would be very different. But I would look forward to hearing more about that, for sure, what you found. And we will hear more about what I found after this break. You're listening to the Corbett Report radio show, hosted generously by the RBN Network. We'll be right back. You're listening because you can handle the truth and you want more. So, uh, James is on vacation. I'm co-hosting. My name's Richard Grove. I'll be here next week. Before we get too far into this last segment, Brett, where can people find your new live show and uh, what's it all about? What do you try to do on that? Live show, if you go to schoolsucksproject.com and in the main nav bar, you click live. Uh, you can watch us every 10, uh, sorry, every Thursday. You start with the day and then you say the time. 10 to midnight Eastern time. Um, and we also stream on another network, just the audio, lrn.fm. You can uh, find us there and connect to us there. And I uh, certainly encourage people to check out all the other uh, programming on that network. But uh, the live show is a, is a call-in show, and I really wanted to do something with my audience that was more interactive. But it is talk radio, where we deal with uh, current events, and talk radio is uh, extremely uh, reactive, and because of that, often very negative. So um, I should thank you, Rich, because you actually helped me formulate what I hope will become the um, the theme, the tone of that show, which is doing uh, responses instead of reactions. In other words, we can look at the problems uh, that come up in the government school system through current events, but hopefully talk about those problems and issues in a more constructive light than uh, talk radio listeners might be accustomed to. So we're three weeks into it, and uh, it's, a, it's a learning process. You know, we're also streaming the show as video, so there's some extra challenges there, but we're getting the hang of it. 
Well, I've certainly enjoyed watching you get the hang of it, and uh, I, I would think of what we're doing, including uh, what, what James does here on Corbett Report Radio, as conscious talk radio, because there's a point to it. We're trying to remove the contradictions from our thinking. We're trying to consistently think with clarity and communicate cogently. And these are some of the struggles that we're all having, so why not share the process of our own learning, uh, how to overcome, uh, how to meet and surmount these obstacles with the audience, and that's what you're doing through not only the School Sucks podcast, but now this new live show that has a heavy amount of interactivity. If you don't want to call in, you can also uh, chat. There's a live interactive chat there, isn't there? Yep. Thanks to those fine people at Ustream. Uh, we're not going to comment on their technical issues and our frustrations, but I know that our production's been held up the past couple weeks, and, and Brett has struggled through uh, like a very persistent person working diligently through all those little snafus. So uh, whenever we see those happen, Brett, I just refresh the page so I don't get an ad, and uh, I just wish you the best. And then usually when it comes back from the ad, <laughs> uh, there you are, and, and you keep going. So uh, don't let those things discourage you. It's not going to get any harder than what it is right now. And once you work these right. things out, uh, it's going to be uh, a consistent value add to everyone who interacts with uh, with you through your show because that is information that, Despite the, uh, the the somewhat, I don't know, uh, jovial name of School Sucks podcast, it's actually very serious and applies to adults as much as students. I mean, more so to adults because I think that I've learned more than most students. If, you know, if you're in high school listening to it and you're getting something from it, great. But uh, know that people of my age and generation have a lot more responsibility and, and work and, and uh, you know, so, so on to catch up on because we're, we're further behind. <laughs> But the, you know, to draw an analogy, we're at Tragedy and Hope getting ready to launch new uh, history so it doesn't repeat. We're much like what Brett's trying to do. We're trying to put these perspectives, um, these news articles we hear each day in about context. what's in context and provide comprehend, uh, comprehension. And that's, uh, you know, we're hoping to get that rolled out in the next week or two and have our first episode. And hopefully we can, uh, alongside with Brett at School Sucks and uh, this live show, we can continue to work together to uh, liberate individuals uh, from the tyranny that's, uh, you know, perpetuating. Public schooling. Public schooling. <laughs> liberate you from the tyranny of public schooling. Brett, thank you so much for joining us tonight and adding some flavor to this broadcast. I'd also like thank to thank you guys. Ulbrich in, uh, in Melbourne. And uh, if you are interested in more information, you can go to tragedyandhope.com, click on the article on the homepage for Friday Night Live, and you will get the notes, references, and the brain model